song is reminding us of the wonderful salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can't help but to think about him coming back when you hear that trumpet game. So that's a good thing. It's good to have our college students back. You know we're missing many folks for the holidays. We gained some friendly faces back, and so it's good to have you guys, and uh, we're praying for you. We love you, and uh, we look forward to Maybe the one day the Lord permanently bringing you back here, but that's between you and the Lord and your parents and whoever you marry, and there's a lot of things that contribute to that, so we appreciate that. Take your Bibles this morning, please. We're going to be in John chapter 14. If you're joining us, uh, we are uh, working through the Gospel of John, and we haven't quite hit uh, the teaching on the Holy Spirit yet, but we're going to start tiptoeing into it a little bit this morning. We've really been looking at uh, the greater works. That's where we ended up last week. and uh, You could read the chapter on your own. Um, but we're going to begin looking at uh, verse 13. Why don't we read uh, verses 12, uh, 13, 14, and 15 here of John chapter 14. We're kind of right in the, the start of Jesus' upper room discourse. Remember, uh, his... His uh, goal here is articulated in verse 1. Do not let, what? Your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I'm going away and you're going to remain. And so that's a sufficient summary, I suppose, for where we're at in the gospel. Then he says in verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and the greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. We asked the question last time, well, what are these greater works? We're going to recap that here a little bit. But verse 13, then Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I already mentioned that the principle that is important for us to remember is that Jesus is going to depart. That's why he says, let not your hearts be troubled, because the disciples will remain. There's a few differences between the disciples that were face-to-face with Jesus and you and me. And, and so it's helpful to kind of articulate some of these differences so we can understand a little bit about what they're thinking and maybe even how they're feeling and why Jesus is motivated to just plainly speak. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He gives them uh, several things uh, to hang their hats on in terms of uh, trying to stay away from trouble and despair in their own life, in their own thinking. If you look back in uh, the, the beginning of the chapter in verse 14, Jesus says, In my house there are many dwelling places. Jesus has the authority to bring men to the Father's house and Then he goes on to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So these are some of the things that he's articulating to to kind of calm the fears and the doubts of the disciples and their troubled souls. He also articulates that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so you should not let your hearts be troubled. And then he moves on to verse 12, where we're at now. You're going to do greater works than these. But there is another truth that Jesus wants us to understand that will help us in the face of this doubt and despair in our own hearts. And that begins in verse 13. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So as we progress through this chapter, we start getting closer a little bit to the key differences between the disciples who had Jesus face to face and and you and me who are now on the other side who are following him. One of those differences is the need for prayer. Do you know that the disciples did not need to pray before Jesus left? Jesus was right there. There was no need for prayer in that regard. Um, And so these instructions are now new uh, for the disciples to pray in Jesus' name, that they could ask him anything and that he would answer. He would do that uh, to their face, uh, though they, they may not get the answer that they're, they're looking, they were looking for. And now we see Jesus is instructing his disciples with something that is really second nature to us. Thousands of years later, after this instruction, right? Pray in Jesus' name. Uh, it's also second nature to us because we have the Holy Spirit. As we'll see here in a little bit, Jesus starts to unpack in verse 16 of this chapter. So that's the other key difference between the disciples who are face-to-face and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we have today. What I don't want us to miss this morning as we start this passage is I don't want us to miss the fact that prayer is a key for a disciple to let not his heart be troubled. Prayer. You know, there's a lot of things that trouble our hearts today, isn't there? If you have a news app, your heart is often troubled. If you have a weather app, what's coming for most of you, your heart is often troubled. My friends, Jesus doesn't want us to stop there. He tells us to pray. And while that seems like an easy thing and kind of a no-brainer thing, often in the moment when your heart is troubled, where do we go? We go to our emotions. We run to somebody else. Some of us run to chocolate. Dark chocolate is my, my problem. You can ask my wife. But we need to run to God in prayer. So I want to put it positively this morning. Prayer is a tool given to Christ's disciples to encourage their belief in him. You need to grow in your faith? You need to pray. You can't grow in your faith without praying. Since prayer is a resource given to help us grow in our faith, if it is misapplied and often misunderstood, it can actually serve the contrary. Do you understand where I'm going? In other words, if you have the wrong motives when you pray, you can actually be more discouraged because of your prayer life, not more encouraged. Have you ever been discouraged after praying and praying and praying and praying for something as you're seeking, as you're asking, as you're knocking, and it doesn't seem that the Lord's opening that door. Some of you have very private troubles maybe between you and your spouse, maybe just between you 
maybe between you and, a, and another believer where you're, you're asking, you're seeking. You want God to do something for you, and yet prayer actually for that thing tends to be a discouragement because of its unanswerdness, not its encouragement. So much so that maybe you've just stopped praying for that thing. And this morning, Jesus wants some of us to have this reminder as we read that there is a tremendous resource to encourage our faith, not discourage it, in the closet of prayer. And also, Jesus gives us very specific instructions here. Or maybe I can say principles for us as we pray to him. Now, what I don't want us to do is to say, well, if I just get these principles down and if I just kind of shake them up and spin them out, that it's kind of like me just going to the lottery and I can just get anything I want. What I, what I, what I don't want us to, to walk away from this morning is to say, you know what, if, if I have this secret formula and if I have these principles, I'm going to get what I want. I chose my words carefully because God, Jesus here doesn't say you're going to get what you want when you pray. He says he's going to answer your prayer. And those are two very different things, aren't they? And those of you who are shaking your head saying, yes, that nuance is needed, you know it in your own life. And you've been encouraged in your faith as God has grown you past getting what you want to answered prayer. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at five principles this morning on how, answered, how prayer will grow our faith and help us so that our hearts will not be troubled. So the first prayer principle this morning, if you're taking notes, is prayer is a profession. Profession. Yes, it's not something necessarily that's our job, though it certainly should be. Uh, the profess here means to declare, to admit, to be open and free about it. Jesus wants us to profess that we're dependent on him. Jesus wants us to what? In verse 13 and verse 14. Whatever you ask. Prayer is not a passive thing, my friends. Prayer is not just merely wishing. Prayer is not just kind of driving and, 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 and just th thinking about, oh, how good it would be if. Prayer must be verbalized. It must be asked. Jesus says, whatever you ask. So it's an important thing. Ask is mentioned twice here in these two verses. Jesus models this asking in verse 16. Look, you know, if someone is one with the Father like Jesus is, there would be a really good reason where he wouldn't actually have to verbalize something, right? Think about it. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And aren't we glad that he asked the Father and he gave us the Holy Spirit? But Jesus had to ask. And Jesus tells us to ask. In fact, five more times in the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciples, you have to ask. In, verse, in chapter 15, verse 7, 
and then again in verse 16, and then you move to chapter 16 and verse 23, and then verse 24, and then verse 26, Jesus says, you must ask. So don't get discouraged. Don't stop verbalizing, whether that's audibly or within your own mind. I'm not going to get into that debate. But Jesus wants us to ask. And he models that asking even in his high priestly prayer. Turn to chapter 17. So this is after the upper room discourse. Because the question is, if all we have to do is ask, does that mean that Jesus gives us a blank check? I mean, that, that's kind of what your mind is going to a little bit if you read verses 13 and 14 of chapter 14, right? Whatever you ask, is that a great big blank check? You shake your head no because you know situationally it's not true. So where is it in our text? Because Jesus doesn't seem to give any qualifiers yet, but, but before and after, he, he does instruct us on how we ask and, and what we should ask for. And in, verse, in chapter 17, he helps us in verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 17. We see that Jesus is praying and asking on behalf of the disciples something. Are you there in chapter 17 with me? In verse 9, he says this. He says, I ask on their behalf, and that is for the disciples. I do not ask on my behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, excuse me, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus asked for his disciples, but he didn't ask for who? For himself, but who else there? For the world. You see that? See, there's a big contrast between Jesus and between the world, between those that believe in Jesus and those who don't. He's not praying for the world, he's praying for his own. You see, it's not just anybody that can come to Jesus and ask. That's Jesus' point. Do you believe that, Christian? That you, of all the people in all the world, have access to ask. So do it. Don't grow tired of it. Be encouraged that Jesus says, you ask, not them. You have a special relationship with the creator of the universe. And he comes, comes to you, and he beckons you, and he pleads with you to ask. Don't let your heart be troubled. Ask. Look at verse 11 and 12. We see a bit more detail about the world when he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. So he's talking about He's talking about the disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus was crucified. He was removed from the world. He's looking forward to that as he's saying these things. But his disciples remain, and yet there is a threat 
to the disciples remaining in this world. That's, there's the contrast that's getting bigger between Jesus and the world, between Jesus' disciples and the world. And Jesus prays along these lines, O Father, keep them in what? In your name. Keep them in you. You have someone who's praying that your faith remains. The one who can grant all things. He's praying for you. He has prayed for you. Keep them in your name. And then we go on to verse 14. And here we see that there are limits to this ask. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. So that contrast is now to a final point where Jesus says the world hates me. It hates the word that I speak. And so it's going to hate them that believe in that word, that believe in me and help speak that word. But I want you to understand something here. Because up until this point, we don't quite get the, the hatred that Jesus is talking about. But what kind of hatred is Jesus actually saying here? Keep on going with me in the gospel. What happens to Jesus? The whole world, right, goes against him and yells what? Crucify him. And they spit him and they mock him and they pierce him until he is dead. The world is a hating, a fiercely hating force, my friends. And this hatred ends in death. And keep on playing it out. We move past the Gospels. Do you know how many apostles die at, by the hand of martyrdom according to church history? All but one. Well, I guess one technically dies at his own hand, Judas. And then John, the, the, the gospel writer here, exiled to Patmos, all but one according to either the Bible or church tradition. Now, it's just church tradition, but it's a pretty strong church tradition. Peter, it, it's, it's, it's said, was crucified upside down. Andrew, it said, was crucified in the form of an X. We had apostles who were slain, apostles who were stoned, apostles who are said that they were pierced through the heart with arrows, apostles who were speared to death. My friends, does the world hate his own? It does. Pastor Steve, where are you going with this? Keep on going with me. Go to the book of Hebrews. Don't go there. But, but to, in your mind, to chapter 11, and we're told there, what? That there were so many that were killed by the sword, that were sawn in two, that were tortured, that were mark, mocked, that were imprisoned. What's the point? Jesus didn't pray here. Remove my disciples from the world. He actually prayed that they would you would stay faithful in the world. And you see so here there there there's there are some limits to Jesus's ask. 
Jesus doesn't ask for something that you and I would, would run straight to and say, oh, take me out of here. Beat me up like Scotty. I don't care how you do it. Let's go. Right in the face of sword, in the face of death, that would be your request all day long for most of you. But that's not Jesus' ask. There are limits. And why are there limits? Well, now we go to the second principle of prayer. Our first principle of prayer is uh, that there, we, we must ask that there's a profession. I'm going to try to keep all P's so it can help you. Right? Our next principle is for the purpose of God's glory. That's why there are limits to what, to what Jesus will answer. Because it has to be, my friends, it has to be according to God's glory. You know, in this chapter, chapter 17, where we're at right now, Eight times Jesus mentions glorifying God in some way. You see it in chapter 17, verse 1, in chapter 17, verse 4, in chapter 17, verse 5, in verse 10, in verse 22, in verse 24. We must be willing to acknowledge that the way God answers our prayers may not be what we want, but what bring God the most glory. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. According to the purpose of God in prayer, is God big enough to do that? You say, oh, of course, God is big enough to bring himself glory. Absolutely. No, no, no. Let me ask you a little bit different of a question. Is God big enough in you to do that? There's a difference there, isn't there? Does God have enough priority in your heart to say, not my comforts, not what I want. Not my wishes. But your will be done. Doesn't Jesus model that for us? All the way to the cross he does. And so it's for God's glory, not for my own. And so is God big enough in you? In your prayer life for that? Jesus does give us some help when it comes to the question of what glorifies God. Now, if we go back to verse chapter 14, our text, and we go to verses 13 and 14, uh, we see that Jesus himself will do it. You see that there? Whatever you ask, I will do. He repeats it twice. And so there is a promise with the prayer that Jesus will glorify God. And that's... Now our third principle. So prayer is a profession. It must be something that we confess to the Lord. It must be something that we ask. It, it requires the purpose of God's glory. And prayer has a promise. And that is that Jesus will do it. But what Jesus does, the prayers that he answers, must be connected with who he is and why he came and what he came to do, right? And so here, again, are some limiters as to what it is that Jesus says, I will do. It has to be according to him, according to his nature, according to who he is. And he shows us what he's done. So who is Jesus, according to the Gospel of John? Can you think about some titles, those of us 
who have been going through this series together. In chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is the Word that gives life, isn't he? He's the light of the world. He's the Lamb of God. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll learn in, verse, in chapter 15 that he is the vine. What are all these names and titles and descriptors of God pointing us to? Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who gives life. You cannot exist apart from him. That's Jesus' purpose. I came not to judge, he says, but to what? To save the world. And so there's a great director. If you want to know how to pray according to glorifying God, you're going to want to pray according to who Jesus is and what he does. And he came to be the word, the light of the life, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the bread of life, the life of the living water that, that causes no one to ever thirst again. That, my friends, that is God's purpose through Jesus. And so also we see, and this will help us by way of review a little bit, in verse 12 of chapter 14, where Jesus says uh, that I am doing works and you will do greater works than these. And so we see through the greater works, the works of Life, John chapter 5 tells us. Not miracles, not the mere signs. Those were great works indeed. They were supernatural, but they were always a signpost to what? The way of life. That Jesus can forgive sins. And so Jesus can raise people from the dead because he is the one who can forgive sins. And, uh, and we see, I want you to take your Bibles and just go to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Okay, because this will help us uh, put a little bit of flesh and blood to the greater works of chapter 14, verse 12. When Jesus says, you're going to do greater works, they're not causing lame men to walk or blind men to see. No, predominantly here, it's something far greater. Go to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks here as we read. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks here as we read. Verse 37. Now, when they... Do you know who that they is? That they are the Jews who just a few short minutes ago, or hours ago, or days ago, I should say, crucified Jesus. Now, when they, those who hated Jesus heard this, what's the this? If you read above, Peter is proclaiming that those of you who just crucified Jesus, he came to save you. Repent of your sins. He was preaching the gospel. The gospel pierced their hearts, verse 37 says, and said, and, and, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, so they asked the question, brethren, what shall we do? These were fellow Jews. What should we do? What should we do about what we just heard? 
<laughs> what should we do about Jesus being the Savior, the one that we crucified? Well, what does Peter say? Right? You got to love Peter. He's ready. Repent. Get saved. Get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So those who had received his word, that is, those who were saved, they were then baptized, uh, professing that they are in Jesus Christ. And that day, what happened? 3,000 souls were added. 3,000 souls got saved. You're talking about the church going from now a handful of men in Acts chapter 2 to 3,000 souls. That's the greater work. The miracle of salvation, that anyone would come, that those who just crucified Jesus would literally be pierced in their hearts from the very word of the one that they crucified, and that they would say, oh my, we must cling to him for all of our life. Let's just do one more. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. We saw the word of God's effect in Acts chapter 2, and now we see it here again in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So now we have even more people getting saved. And then look what happens. Those who were part of the the uh, establishment of the religious system, the very Pharisees and Sadducees who were working their way to keep themselves on the top and to get rid of this Christ, this Jesus who was in their way. What happens to many of them? And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You want to know about greater works? It's the Pharisee and the Sadducee looking at the perfect law of liberty and finding liberty and life in the one that they crucified. That's the greater works. And so Jesus is all about that. He's all about that. And so we understand that Jesus' promises, what he will do and, and who he is, is wrapped up into our requests, into, into, him pro, into his promises to answer prayer. So fourthly, as our time is at a close, prayer is through the person of Jesus Christ. We see that two times in, Act, in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. We see that prayer is in Jesus' name. And Jesus' name is not a magical incantation that I can append to whatever I want. Right? That, that's one of the, the things that people get trapped. If I just put that formula in there, that, that's at least got me a fighting chance. It's not how it works. You've got to understand who Jesus is. You've got to understand what he wants, and we understand that he wants people to come and get saved, not for you to have health, wealth, and prosperity, or whatever it is that you want to append his name to. You know, this doesn't even mean, I want to just be careful here, this doesn't even mean that for a prayer to be effective, that you have to say, in Jesus' name, Amen. That's a good thing to say. It's a good reminder. In fact, it might be such a good reminder that we should start our prayers that way. Reminding ourselves that whatever it is in Jesus' name, whatever it is that, is that he's about, that aligns with his character and his will and his life, 
That's what I should be praying for. Amen. Right? That's, that's kind of the force here. And so I'm not saying, is it, I, I certainly pray that way. I encourage my children to pray that way. But, but, I, but, it, but it also is not a magical incantation that you must say something. Special words. Jesus' name reminds us of the access that we have to the Father and the alignment that our prayers must be in his character, his words, his works. And so if you are in Jesus Christ, you have access, my friends, to pray. You have access. And your prayer is just as much before God as anyone else's that's in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I feel like, um, and this is good, this is, we want people to, to have prayer requests, and, and I want people to let me know how they're, they're praying for me, but sometimes people will come up to a pastor and they'll think, oh, if, if the pastor just prays, that's going to be so much better than if I just pray. And what Jesus is reminding us here is, no, brother, sister, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have access What Jesus is telling us here flat out is saying, you don't need a priest. I am the high priest, he says. You don't need a priest. You don't need a church. Your prayers are no more effective if if they emanate from this four walls or if they emanate from the four walls of your house. You don't need to perfect yourself or or clean yourself up Only Jesus can do that. And if you're in Jesus, you can pray. If you're in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you, comforting you, convicting you, praying for you, and we're going to start unpacking the realities of the Holy Spirit in you as we're in Jesus, that means that the Holy Spirit in you is Christ in you. And and he even prays for you. So there's, there's so many things that we're going to be looking at here in the next few chapters about being in the Lord Jesus Christ, being in, uh, having the Holy Spirit in us. But I want us to be encouraged that we have access because we are, if we are in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our last principle, prayer is a, there's a pathway to prayer. And the pathway of answered prayer is Verse 15, it's through love and obedience. You know, the only imperatives in this section, that is the only command, it's not to pray. (laughs) It's twice in verse 11, and that is to believe. That's what's commanded here, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And belief always manifests itself in these two actions in in verse 15. To love and to obey. There's some simple children's songs along those lines. And it's good. It's that simple. And this is just a reminder that if you're going to pray, that is to profess, to ask, principle number one, according to the right purpose, that's glorifying God, principle number two, because you are praying in the person of Jesus Christ in his name, that's principle number three, Oh, I forgot number three. Uh, The claim of his promises. Sorry, that's principle number three. And then his praying in his person, that's number four. 
You've got to be a disciple who believes in Jesus. And belief isn't just for the lips, my friends. It's for the heart. And it's not just for the heart, it's for the mind. And it's not just for the mind, it's for the hands. And it's not just for the hands, it's for the feet. In other words, belief does look like something. And belief looks like loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And, the, and belief looks like obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't get to Jesus by doing those things, but I reveal that I am in Jesus by loving and obeying him. And so sometimes as we pray, our life couldn't be more further from the reality of loving obedience to our master. And so there is no prayer Real right prayer demands right living. That doesn't mean that I get to God a certain way. That doesn't mean that my works get me to the throne of grace. But it does mean that if I'm truly going to live and be about what Jesus lived and is about, I'm going to love him and I'm going to obey him. And my life is going to look like it. Not perfectly. No. But, it, but, it, but something is amiss is, is something is amiss if 5% of my life is about Bible reading and prayer and listening to a sermon and 95% of it is about myself. That's not. That's not someone who's going to pray rightly. That's someone who's probably going to have a lot of unanswered prayer. That's my point. Does that make sense? So there's a pathway to prayer, and that's loving obedience. In closing, do you recall the short story? It's kind of this time of year, so that's why it came up in my brain. The short story, The Gift of the Magi. We did that a few, twice. Was it twice, Laura? Twice. So good. We'll probably do it again, maybe next year. Um, the gift of the Magi. You remember it? It's a young couple, Jim and Della. I didn't remember. I had to look those names up. They're deeply in love, but they're as broke as can be. And it's Christmas time, and they want to express their, loves for, their love for each other through meaningful gifts. And uh, Della decides to sell her long, beautiful hair. Do you remember the story? To a wig maker so she can buy a chain for Jim's watch. And Jim, what does he do? He sells his watch so that he can buy beautiful combs to just sit sweetly in Della's hair. Well, what happens? They sell each other's beautiful things. And so you could look at those gifts and you could say, well, you know what? That's kind of a failure. <laughs> Or you could look at it, you know, from the man's point of view and say, well, at least Della got the better end of the deal because her hair will grow back and then she can eventually use the combs. Jim's just stuck with a chain. <laughs> or you can look at it through the lens of relationship, right? And that's the intention of O. Henry. He wants us to look at the, the sacrifice and the love of the relationship. It's not about the stuff. It's about the love that those two have for each other. And you can say, wow, these two are incredibly sacrificial in their giving. They truly, what? Love each other. 
My friends, that is exactly Jesus' point, I believe, here in prayer. You can look at prayer through the lens of a deliverable, through the lens of asking and answering. Or you can look at prayer as Jesus wants us to look at prayer, as a resource given to help us grow in our faith, to help us grow in our relationship with him. You may think that your answer to prayer is a comb. Or you may think it's a chain when all along it's something so much more. It's something Jesus is intending to encourage you with. And that is a relationship with him. So look at your own prayer life this morning. Is it mostly about what you can get? Is it about the comb? Is it about the chain? Or is it about God's purposes? About His glory? About the salvation of souls in Jesus' name? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to look at prayer afresh and anew as Jesus intends for us to look at it here. He calls us to say, let not our hearts be troubled. And then he gives us a means, a resource to comfort our hearts. And that is to pray. To pray with great purpose and understanding. To pray in his name according to his character and his ways. To help us to understand that Situations may, di- be di- di- may be difficult. We may have some things that we lack, but they are not the things that are important. What do you have called us to? The reason why we remain here and, we're, and why we're not instantly caught up in our salvation and in your presence is because you long for us to do something. You long for us to be about your glory. You long for us to give the gospel in Jesus' name so that you may be glorified. So I pray that you would help us to bolster about our love and our obedience to you this morning, that you'd give us a renewed purpose this week as we march into a world that is bustling and busy with the holiday trappings. Help us to take extra time this Christmas season to pray for one, two, as many as we can to see them come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior so that your name would be glorified. Give us, give us that task overwhelmingly in our minds and in our hearts this Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.